U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy history podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined remotely from a area uh, that we are keeping under wraps because it is classified, and if we told you, we'd have to kill you. Christoph! Hey, yeah, I don't want to kill anybody, so just be cool. Uh, I mean, and glad to be here. <laughs> so glad to be here and talking to all of you wonderful listeners, and you, Dale. Oh, thank you. I- I'm included in that. I, I-, I appreciate that. That's very kind. Well, I wanted, to- I wanted to make a division between the wonderful listeners and then you, you know? The wonderful listeners, then you. Yeah, you got it. So we are in the American Civil War still. We are in the Trans-Mississippi Theater of the Civil War, and specifically the Texas and Louisiana area of operations. We have a few more battles to go through before we move into the last area of operation. So we're going to be getting into the Battle of Galveston Harbor. So if you are ready to get underway... Indeed, let's go. Let's cast off. So this happened in 1862. This is uh, pretty much when the U.S. began a blockade of Galveston Harbor in July of 1861. But the town remained in Confederate hands for... Over a year. Then at 0600 on October 4th, 1862, a guy named Commander William B. Renshaw. He was commanding the blockading ships in Galveston Bay. He sent the USRC Harriet Lane into the harbor flying a flag of truce. Now, the Harriet Lane is a paddle wheel steamer with sails. I bet that looked interesting. Uh, it does, and I can actually show you a picture if you are interested. Ooh, yes, and um, if you want to join the Discord, everybody, maybe you'll see the picture too. Yeah, Kristoff will post it just for you. Oh, that's, man, nice. I will post it. Isn't that pretty? That is cool. So, the Harriet Lane goes into the harbor with the flag of truce. Their intention was to inform the military authorities in Galveston that if they did not surrender, that the Navy ships would attack. They had one hour to reply. An hour doesn't seem like a lot of time. No, yes and no. So a guy there, Colonel Joseph J. Cook, he was the Confederate military commander, he would not come out to the boat or even send anybody to grab the communication that they were, you know, delivering. So Harriet Lane weighs anchor and returns to the fleet. After that, four Union steamers with a mortar boat being towed behind them, they enter the harbor. Oh. They go to the place where the Harriet Lane had anchored. And now that uh, these guys have come in, the Confederates see this and at Fort Point fire more, uh, fire a few shots at them. And of course, the 
U.S. Navy ships are not going to take that line down, and they quickly answer back. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you fly the flag of truce and to a point. Well, they didn't have a flag of truce this time. Oh, The flag nice. of truce was ignored. They went back out, and they brought back their... They followed what they were going to do with the letter. Yes, that's correct. I guess I just assumed, for whatever reason, the flag was still up. But yeah, they have guys that can change those out. We're all good. Sailors. Flags were up, but it was no white flag. Right. Sorry. Continue. Uh, eventually, the Union ships would disable a Confederate gun at Fort Point, and they, you know, concentrated fire at other targets. Uh, a couple of rebel guns from Fort Bankhead were also fired at the flotilla, but they did no damage, so the Navy just ignored them. They were like, uh, yeah, try again. So Colonel Cook, he dispatches a boat that is now on a course for the Union vessels. And there are, they have two Confederate officers on board, and they board the USS Westfield. Renshaw demands a unconditional surrender of Galveston, or he would bombard the town again. Cook refuses his terms and tells Renshaw that, that he had the res, uh, responsibility of destroying the town and killing women, children, and immigrants. If he open fired again. Whoa. That's a pretty... Yeah, okay. He, he tried to guilt trip him. Yeah. Well, I mean, it works. I mean, ask my mom. Okay. Hey, mom. Does guilt tripping work? Oh, yes. Thanks, mom. So, Renshaw continues to threaten them and saying, we're going to resume shelling. And he actually prepared to tow the motorboat mortar mortar boat into position i know it keeps sounding like i'm saying motor boat instead of you know mortar boat yeah one letter difference that's that's tricky so one of the confederate officers then asks if he could be granted time to talk with colonel cook again this officer who was a major negotiated with renshaw for a four-day truce to evacuate the women, children, and aliens from the city. And when I say aliens, I'm not talking about little green men with probes. I'm talking about uh, illegal immigrants. Well, it could be legal also. I think, wasn't alien just a term for basically non-American or foreigner? Could be. Cook, uh, he approves the truce, but he makes a addendum. He said that Renshaw would not be allowed to move troops closer to Galveston, and Cook would not permit his men to come below the city. So the agreement is finalized, but, of course, not written down, which, you know, causes problems later. Mm-hmm. Always get it in writing. Mm-hmm. The Confederates did evacuate. They took all of their weapons, ammunition, supplies, and whatever they could carry with them. Renshaw, he did not think that the agreement allowed for this, but in the end, he didn't do anything because there was no written proof. 
So, of course, the uh, fall of Galveston meant that a important Confederate port was now closed to commerce. But the port of Galveston was actually not shut down for very long because the Confederates came back and reoccupied the area. And this was the Second Battle of Galveston in January 1863. And that is actually what we're going to talk about next. So you want to just roll right into that? Or do yeah, you, let's do it. Or do you want to put out your thoughts of this last one? I, I think it's interesting to see whenever terms of surrender are issued. I remember the first time I'd heard about unconditional surrender was when the U.S. asked for unconditional surrender from the Japanese in World War II I mean, when I was younger. And just to see it periodically through different wars, different battles, just there has to be a lot of either overwhelming force, like there, I have no choice, or some semblance of trust with the, the person that's demanding the unconditional surrender. And I keep trying to put myself in the minds of the Confederates in Galveston the Union is asking for unconditional surrender so they can do anything they want. They can't, you know, there's no terms that I'm allowed to say, well, yes, but we want to do this. Like like they eventually ended up doing. It's like, well, let's evacuate the women and children. I don't, I, I don't know. They interest me. And so as we go through the different conflicts and battles in those conflicts, it'll be interesting to me to see when those show up and when they're uh, accepted because I imagine it's not very often, or when they're just denied or negotiated, we'll say. Well, they didn't evacuate the women and children. They evacuated themselves. Oh, oh yes. I mean, that was the agreement. They, it's, You're right. They didn't do that. But what I'm saying is they didn't accept an unconditional surrender. They tried to negotiate it, at least so there were terms to the surrender, even though those terms weren't followed. And I, I think that was sneaky. Always get it in writing. Again, very important. But um, That wasn't terms of surrender anyway. That was just terms to be able to evacuate the civilians. They never okay. agreed to surrender. Then that is my mistake. I was confusing, I was conflating two ideas. So uh, what I will do is I will go back after this is published and listen to it so I can hear <laughs> what the actual thing was said and then remember that. Okay. You, you, you'll do a rewind at a time. Got it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. You're right. You're correct. And now we're all caught up. Ignore my, my mistakes from earlier. Uh, so the second Battle of Galveston. This happened January 1st, 1863. This is when the Confederacy under Major General John B. Magruder attacks and drives out the Union troops. So they brought in two Confederate cottonclads, the C.S. Bayou City and the C.S. Neptune. They sailed from Houston to Galveston in an effort to engage the Union fleet in Galveston Harbor, which consisted of the USS Clifton, the USS Harriet Lane, the USS Westfield, the USS Owasco, the USS Corypheus, and the USS Suckham. So they're bringing in two versus... Six? Six. 
That's crazy. Yeah. So the Neptune is severely damaged by Union fire and, you know, eventually sinks. And the Neptune is quickly disabled. The Bayou City does succeed, though, in capturing the USS Harriet Lane. And at the same time, the USS Westfield is grounded on a sandbar. And a three-hour truce is then called for by the McGruger. But the Union Fleet Commander, William B. Renshaw, remember this guy? Oh, yeah. He ignores the negotiation offer. And he's like, attempts to destroy the Westfield with explosives rather than letting it fall into enemy hands. Uh, Renshaw and several Union troops are then killed when a explosive went off rather too early. So on the shore, the Union troops were convinced that uh, their ships were surrendering because of all this chaos, and so they laid down their arms. And the uh, U.S. ships that were remaining actually had not surrendered, and they did retreat to Union-controlled New Orleans. So the Union blockade around the city of Galveston is now lifted temporarily for about four days, and Galveston remains in Confederate hands for the remainder of the war. The Confederate Congress had a little thing to say about the recapture of Galveston. Would you like to hear it? Uh, Yes, I'm curious what they had to say. Quote, the bold, intrepid, and gallant conduct of Major General J. Bankhead McCruger. His name keeps getting better and better every time it's put out there. Oh, yeah. Colonel Thomas Green, Major Lennon Smith, and other officers of the Texan Rangers and soldiers engaged in the attack on and victory achieved over the land and naval forces of the enemy at Galveston. On the 1st of January, 1863 eminently entitled them to the thanks of Congress and the country. This brilliant achievement resulting under the providence of God and the capture of the war steamer Harriet Lane and the defeat and ignominious flight of the hostile fleet from the harbor, the recapture of the city and the raising of the blockade of the port of Galveston significantly invinces that superior force may be overcome by skillful conception and Daring courage. No, they got lucky. Yeah. Get dead, they got lucky. (laughs) Sometimes uh, luck is better than skill, for sure. So those are the two battles of Galveston. Any uh, colorful uh, words to say after that? The only thing I can think of is, it sounds like the Confederate Congress is no different than our modern U.S. Congress, in that it's like, hey, shouldn't you be passing laws? Um, we don't need you to spend time with proclamations about stuff. And uh, granted, this is something that it, they're fighting for the the live the life of the Confederacy, as opposed to like, hey, let's recognize this sports team for how great they did. And I'm like, you're not. That's not a U.S. Congress thing. But that's my personal opinion. Well, yeah, they did that on the Union side too, all the time. Oh, yeah? What they're doing is they're trying to bolster uh, the morale of the civilians and their own troops by saying, hey, look what we did. 
that's that's the whole thing with that. And that still goes on today. Oh yes. That's true. I'm not I guess mm, I'm mixed. Well, that's where I've landed. I'm mixed about it. You're mixed. Okay. Put you in the blender and push the power button. Ooh, uh um no, not that <laughs> not not that kind of mixed. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna mix on to the action of off Galveston Light. This was a naval battle in January of 1863. So the USS Hatteras was 1,126 long tons and commanded by Captain Homer C. Blake and was assigned to the West Gulf Blockading Squadron off of Galveston, where she was stunk where she was sunk. The steamer had a crew of 126 officers and men and was armed with four 32-pounder and one 20-pounder naval cannons. Guy named Captain Raphael Seamus commanded the 1,050-ton sloop of war, CSS Alabama, and she carried 145 officers and men with six 32-pounders one 110-pounder, and one 68-pounder. This encounter between the two vessels was the first combat action of Alabama's very distinguished career. Maybe uh, we'll go over the Alabama one day. So at around 1500, on January 11, 1863, the Hatteras was on blockade duty with the USS Brooklyn and five other boats off of Galveston when a sail was spotted above the horizon. Captain Blake was then ordered to chase the unidentified ship in the Hatteras and to capture the vessel if it was a enemy vessel. This ship was the Alabama, and she would not be able to escape. So the pursuit keeps going until nightfall, just over 20 miles away from Galveston Harbor to a position off the Galveston Light. The Hatteras came alongside of the Alabama and demanded that the crew identify themselves. The rebels then said that they were the HBMS Spitfire in an attempt to confuse the Union sailors. So Captain Blake ordered a boat to be filled with people and lowered to go over and board them. But just as the launch shoved off, the Confederates shouted, We're the CSS Alabama, raised their colors, and opened fire with a very heavy broadside on the port side of the Union boat. Of course, the, the surprise on the Hatters was a lot, but they did return fire. Of course, their broadside was a bit smaller. So for 13 minutes, these guys dueled. Uh, Captain Seamus would later call it a sharp and exciting engagement. In the end, crewmen aboard the Hatteras fired a signal gun to announce that they were defeated. And Hatteras was slowly sinking. So Captain Blake ordered the magazines flooded to prevent a explosion that would destroy the boat and everybody on it. Men began jumping into the water and boats from the Alabama were lowered to provide assistance. Well, that's nice. 
Yeah. Well, they've surrendered. Now it's time for a rescue effort. Right. That's the law of the sea. At the same time, a boat with six Union sailors escaped along the coast and evaded and evaded the Confederacy guys who were searching for survivors. Two U.S. Navy enlisted men were killed in action and five were wounded and 118 taken prisoner. The Alabama sustained several holes in her hull and have some other damage, but Captain Seamus reported that none of it was serious and prevented the vessel from sailing. Two rebels were wounded. Wow, what an overwhelming outcome for the Confederacy. That's surprise, baby. <laughs> so after the sinking of the uh, steamer, the Confederates sailed for the South Atlantic. They were chased unsuccessfully by some of the other blockaders in Galveston Bay. So no further battles occurred. Eventually, Seamus made his way to Cherbourg in France, where his ship was destroyed by the USS Kearsarge. The USS Brooklyn discovered the wreck of the Hatteras and following, and the next morning found that she was resting on the bottom in nine and a half fathoms, with only her masts sticking about, sticking out above the water. Her colors were not struck in the battle and were still waving in the breeze when the Brooklyn got there. I bet that was an interesting sight, just seeing the top of a mast with the U.S. colors on it. Yeah. So that's the uh, battle off of Galveston Light. That's interesting how, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm uh, glued to my seat with these battles, just the way they go back and forth and the shenanigans that ensue on, on both sides to, to achieve victory. Oh, there's lots of shenanigans, a lot of fake stuff that they, fake surrenderings happened all the time. Uh, happened a lot in 1812, and uh, mm -hmm. when we go back to do the revolution, uh, that's going to happen a lot too. So that brings us to the Second Battle of Sabine Pass. This happened September 8th, 1863. So during the summer of 1863, bleh, 1863, the president of Mexico, a guy named Benito Juarez, was overthrown and replaced by the emperor Maximilian. And uh, France got him in charge. Oh, yeah. Uh, France had been op openly sympathetic to the Confederacy early in the war, but had never matched its sympathy with diplomatic action, which is probably the only reason why they didn't enter the war. But now that a French government existed just south of the Rio Grande, the Confederacy hoped to establish a fruitful entry for much-needed material. Yeah, they were hoping to bring in stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, President Lincoln, he was well aware of what the Confederacy was trying to do. And so he sent guys to Texas to establish a military presence to, you know, discourage Maximilian from uh, trading with the Confederacy. This force was under the command of Major General Nathan P. Banks who was a political general with a, a little bit 
only a little bit of an ability to command. So he's more politically inclined than he was militarily inclined. Now, Banks' original intent was to lead a combined Army-Navy expedition from the Mississippi River into the Red River. But uh, the water was a bit low in the Red River, so this prevented the Union gunboats from getting into it. So because of that, the expedition entered the Sabine River from the Gulf of Mexico. Then Banks orders his uh, subordinate, a guy named Major General William B. Franklin, to go after a small Confederate detachment at Fort Griffin, which was near the mouth of the river, and to capture Sabine City. This this detachment had about 46 infantrymen of the 1st Texas Heavy Artillery and six guns manned by the Jeff Davis Guards. And this was all under the command of Lieutenant Richard Dick Dowling, old RDD. He uh, considered the uh, size of the Union Expeditionary Force, and when you take into effect the uh, how many men were on each side, nobody really expected that uh, the defense of the fort would really be up to any challenge. Yeah, we've seen that already with several fort engagements, so I, I could understand that thinking. So when the battle starts, the United States Navy Captain Frederick Crocker, he enters the Sabine River with four gunboats, and he also had 18 troop transports containing 5,000 infantry. Whoa. Now, Dowling and his Texans had previously placed stakes in the river to act as markers for cannon fire. And as the Union convoy entered among the stakes, the Confederacy opened fire with quite deadly accuracy. And, of course, very accurate cannon fire, a lot of havoc and confusion. So the Union Army was forced to withdraw down the river after losing two gunboats and 200 sailors being captured. Wow. We don't believe the Confederacy had any casualties. So that makes this Confederate victory. That's unusual. It's <laughs> two in one episode. <laughs> so in recognition of this victory, local residents smoothed off Mexican dollars and stamped them with the battle and date. Plus, you know the name of each soldier and they hung them on green ribbons and presented them to the troops nice the uh, confederate congress also created the davis guard medal and this is believed to be the only official military decoration issued by the confederate c confederacy yeah so of course the (laughs) tactical and strategic significance of the this battle was that a Confederate supply line from Mexico to Texas was never established. And in any case, it would not have effectively, supply, effectively supplied the states east of the Mississippi anyway because the Union controlled the Mississippi. Right, after, the whole length of the Mississippi. Yeah, after Vicksburg. So the Confederacy was forced to continue trying its blockade running 
efforts to import the material that they needed. So there you go. That is the Battle of Sabine Pass. The second one, actually. Yeah. So this was 1863, correct? Yes. By this point? I, okay. September. Yeah, we're, we're cruising along to the uh, exciting conclusion. So that is going to bring us to the Second Battle of Donaldsonville. This was also 1863. This was June. This was in Louisiana. So on June 28th of 1863, a Confederate general, Brigadier General Jean-Alfred Mouton, he orders a different Brigadier General, a guy named Tom Green, and Colonel James Patrick's majors they to bring their brigades to take down Donaldsonville, Louisiana. The Union had built a fort called Fort Butler, and the rebels had to take this before they could take the town. So in the fort, there were two companies of the 28th Maine Volunteer Infantry and some other guys from various other regiments, you know, a mixed mixed leftovers put into a regiment. So the Confederate forces were Tom Green's Texas Brigade and Colonel James Patrick's Major's Texas Brigade. So on the night of June 27th, Green, when he was within a half mile of the fort, began moving his troops ahead to attack. The attack started just after midnight, and the Confederacy quickly surrounded the fort and began passing through various obstructions that had been sent out to stop them. These troops started attacking along the levees and came to a ditch that they did not know about. And it was way too wide for them to cross. And that is actually what saved the Union garrison. Then a Union gunboat, the USS Princess Royal, comes along to aid them and starts shelling the Confederate army. The Confederacy continued making futile assaults for a number of hours, but eventually they realized this was untenable and they retreated. I'm surprised how effective a ditch can be. Yeah. Why do you think uh, in medieval times they had lots of moats? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I can see that. <laughs> um, I, it's, it's clear how effective it can be given approaches and walls and technology and everything. But even still, like it's just surprising when you see something from ancient times and it's still effective today. Like the stirrup. It's like, yep, that, that works really great. Let's just keep using that. And so they have. If it ain't broke, why fix it? <laughs> right, exactly. And I guess the ditch falls in that category. Why do you think well, there's so many ditches in Texas? <laughs> it's, I thought it was uh, to, to get the rain off the roads, but I don't know. I guess to, to keep the union at bay. Exactly. Because you, know, <laughs> you know they're still tacking to this day, right? That's the word on the street. All righty. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, we're just joking, everybody. We know. We yes. know that it's over. <laughs> we know and we've accepted. That, uh, <laughs> yes, we're part of the union. We, we get it. So the last one of this area of operations is the Battle of Blair's Landing. This was fought on April 12th, 1864 in louisiana 
So after the Battle of Pleasant Hill on April 9th, Brigadier General Tom Green, he leads his men to Pleasant Hill, landing on the Red River, where at around 1600, on April 12th, they found grounded and damaged Union transports and gunboats. This was the 16 and 17 Corps River Transportation. The gunboats were, had supplies and armaments on board, and so troops from the Union Brigadier General Thomas Kilby Smith's Provisional Division and the Navy gunboats furnished protection for the Army transports. So Green sees this, and he had his men charge the boats. And when Green attacks, Smith's men used a lot of ingenuity in defending the boats and dispersing the Confederate army. They hid behind bales of cotton and sacks of oats and other, you know, obstructions. And the men on the vessels, along with the gunboats themselves, replied when they saw the charge. They killed Green, and they just they decimated the Confederate ranks. Whoa. The Confederacy withdraws, and most of the Union transports just continue on their merry way. Do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah. on, the, on April 13th, at Camp T, other boats ran, run aground, and they come under fire from Brigadier General St. John Richardson Liddell's and his sub-district of North Louisiana troops. And they harassed the convoy from April 12th to the 13th. The convoy then rendezvous with Major General Nathan Banks and his army at Grand Encore, and they give them the supplies that they badly needed. So all in all, the convoy, they have seven casualties. General Green and his men, on the other hand, 200. Oof. That's quite a disparity. Very. Well, that's why I use the word decimated. Uh, uh, that's appropriate. Yes. Uh, I did not use it lightly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that is it for Texas and Louisiana area of operations. And that brings us to Indian Territory area of operations. So the Indian Territory, as it was called, occupied most land in Oklahoma and served as an unorganized region set aside for the Native American tribes of the southeastern United States after, you know, being kicked out of their land for the last 30 years. The area hosted a number of skirmishes and seven officially recognized battles that involved the Native Americans allied with the Confederate States of America. Uh, Native Americans loyal to the U.S. government and Union Confederate troops. So each, uh, each side had tribes that were loyal to them. Interesting. There was a campaign led by a Union general guy named James G. Blunt, and he was to secure the Indian Territory. And this, of course, was the Battle of Honey Springs, July 17th, 1863. He 
his force did include Native Americans, and but the Union Army did not incorporate Native Americans into its regular army. Officers and soldiers supplied to the Confederacy from Native Americans' lands numbered at around 7,860. And these came largely from the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Creek, and Somali nations. It's a lot of uh, C... Uh, a lot of tribes to start with the letter C. Yes, that that was a lot. But of no Comanches, sense. I noticed. No, no, no Comanches. No, I think Comanches were on the east. Oh, okay. I thought they were. I think North Texas area ish, or maybe south. I don't remember. Uh, apologies to all of our Comanche listeners for being so ignorant of your history. Um, I'll I'll take it upon myself to bone up on that, and then next episode maybe. I'll uh, throw out a few factoids. All right. You do that. I, 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 I look forward to learning from you. Well, that's, uh, that's never going to happen. But uh, we'll, we'll give it a shot. I mean, I'll give it the old college try. All right. So as you can imagine, uh, the Indian Territory campaign, really, there, there's no naval action. First of all, it's Oklahoma. Second of all, I don't think Native Americans would have a navy. That's a good point. I've not read of that before. So that is that for the Trans-Mississippi area of operations. So what we'll do is we'll end it right there with that part. And next time we're going to get into the Pacific Coast Theater. Uh, the American Civil War. Nice, yeah. I've never heard of um, really about any engagements on the Pacific Coast, so that's I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most uh, histories taught in schools concentrate on the East Coast, where right, where, not even the Gulf Coast. No, not even the Gulf Coast. So yeah, I'm glad we're bringing this information to the people. You know, of course, supplementing how their schools failed them. All right. So we are partnered with HeroCars.us, where we honor one of our fallen angels. And since the Marine Corps is part of the Navy, part of we're all part of one big family, we are going to honor one of our fallen Marines. So today we are honoring Lance Corporal William Billy Cred Co-Prince Jr., his hometown was Lenore City, Tennessee. He served in the 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marine Regiment, 2nd Marine Division, 2nd Marine, 2nd uh, Marine Expeditionary Fort, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. He received the Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was December 27, 2006. Killed in action near Habiniya al-Anbar al Province, Iraq. He was 24 years old. William Coe Prince Jr. was born on September 16, 1982, in Southgate, Michigan, to his parents, Bernice and William Coe Prince. The family, including his sister Morgan, referred to William as, as the older William as Bill and the younger as Billy. So when Billy was 10 years old, his family moved to Lenore City, Tennessee, southwest of Knoxville in June of 1991. 
and Billy was a member of New Life Church of the Nazarene in nearby Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and he graduated from Lenar City High School in the spring of 2001. Now, against his parents' wishes, Coe Prince enlisted in the United States Marine Corps in September of 2003. His father, his father told the Associated Press, quote, I tried to convince him to go across the hallway to the Air Force recruiter, but he wanted to be the best. He wanted to be a Marine. Co-Prince completed basic training at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island, which is in South Carolina. And his first deployment was to Djibouti, Africa, which is a strategically important passage between the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden and a gateway for ships traveling between the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean. His first tour of duty in Iraq began in March 2005 in operation of in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And he was assigned to help guard the Iraqi border with Syria along the Euphrates River. Co-Prince returned to the U.S. in October of 2005. In July of 2006, Co-Prince was deployed again to Iraq and assigned to the 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marine Regiment, 2nd Marine Division, 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force, based out of the Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Lance Corporal Co-Prince's mother recalls that her son at first wanted to make a career of serving in the Marine, but changed his mind when he was making plans to attend college. He talked about studying landscaping and was looking forward to returning to the U.S. in February when his tour was completed. Co-Prince's father said that Billy's phone calls home were typically quite short. When he called, he knew there was guys with wives and kids who were waiting for the phone. He wanted them to be able to talk to their families. Two days after Christmas, 2006, on December 27th, Lance Corporal Co-Prince was on foot patrol as a pair, as a part of joint mission with the Iraqi army to round up insurgents near Habanya in Al-Anbar province. He was killed by a roadside bomb just five weeks short of completing his service and returning home at the age of 24. Lance Corporal William Billy C. Co-Prince was laid to rest near his hometown of Lenore City, Tennessee, and his father said, quote, he did his best. That's what he chose. That's what he wanted to do. So Lance Corporal William Billy Craig Co-Prince Jr. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Christoph. When, when it settles down yes, over there, you want to take us out? <laughs> yes. My undisclosed location is bustling with activity. It's so teeming I'll, I'll with life. To, that's right. <laughs> I'll try to keep it brief. All right. Um, so thanks for listening, number one. Uh, we couldn't have this show really without you. Or we could, but it really wouldn't mean nearly as much. Like you're just talking into the void. But you're there, and we appreciate it. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at usnavyhistorypod.com. Oh, sorry, U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Trying to remember all the different things, and <laughs> they, they run together. Hey, you know what? It could be so, worse. We could be on all the sh social stuff. Oh, I'm so glad you've limited it. So I can remember the email address, U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Then, if you'd like to be on Twitter slash X, you can find us at at usn history pod we will be there 
Uh, as previously mentioned in this episode, we have a Discord channel, and I will be posting a picture of a sailed steamer on it, hopefully today, but in the in the immediate future. So please join us on the Discord and have conversations with other folks. Uh, finally, you can also see us on YouTube, not see us uh, literally, but you can hear these episodes on YouTube. And um, yeah, please, please pick any of the various uh, podcast listening things or yes, we're here for you. Enjoy your listening. And, and please rate and subscribe. That really does help get the word out and uh, be able to be joined by like-minded people like like yourselves. So with that, we're going to go ahead and say fair winds and following sea. Goodbye, everybody. Take care. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. <laughs>